when I saw the inmate population, first of all, to me, they were thrown away as children. So many of them were had the worst upbringings, the worst parents, the worst situations, and the social and racial inequities really bothered me. And uh, then you have custody, which most people don't understand that custody officers, they're not like police. Police have a, a fair amount of training. Custody officers have a high school education, six weeks of training, and then they're in charge of people's lives 24 hours every single day for decades. That is can be a formula for disaster. Hi, I'm Sylvia Beckerman. Join me today as I talk to an extraordinary woman who is changing the world by making a difference in her life and the lives of those around her. Hi, my name's Karen Gedney. I'm an internal medicine specialist who found my calling behind prison walls as a prison doctor for 30 years. And today I'm going to be talking with Sylvia on Sylvia and Me. And what I want people to know is the whole interesting world that most people do not know because it is for the most part kept away from society and why after I retired, took on being an author, a speaker and an activist in prison reform as well as a lot of other odd things in transitioning from a, one career to another. Well, Karen, I welcome you here today. This is going to be a very interesting conversation. We're going to start off with you, as you said, um, you're a doctor and you actually was a doctor at an all-male correctional facility, a prison, for 30 years. Correct. Um, and from what I understand, that started off with you wanted to be a doctor. You always, from the age of nine, you wanted to be a doctor and you got a scholarship. And part of that was that you had to uh, work four years with underser underserved um, population. And so you started off at the Nevada Correction Facility. Correct. And I must say, when I signed that contract to work in an area, I was thinking inner cities or rural areas. Yeah. And I would have never thought I would be put in a male prison. And actually, when I signed that contract way back in the late 70s, I don't even think they ever thought about that either. And that's because most people don't know that prisons really didn't have or even think about medical care until the Supreme Court, Estelle versus Gamble in 1976, said that prisons had to actually offer medical care if there was a serious medical need. And in the old days, wardens could decide, ah, too bad, you're just gonna die. And that's how it was like. I don't and think anyone when, knows that. No, no, of course not. <laughs> and it was really that particular Supreme Court case that opened the door for lawsuits. And as a lot of people know, many things don't change until lawsuits happen and there is a cry against injustice, and then it takes a while to get momentum. And, you know, 10 odd years later, uh, they threw me in the prison system, and I was really the first, I will say, um, like legitimate doctor the prison had. 
because and you're also had, you're also oh, a female and, and an all male right and the first female that got thrown in and it was an incredibly wild time for me because if someone would say uh well what did you know about prisons? I was about as naive as anyone could get. I grew up in the Catskill Mountains, you know, isolated oh, yeah. with <laughs> sort of immigrant parents. Uh, and I didn't even know anybody who had been to jail or used a drug or even smoked cigarettes. You know, I was about, I was incredibly naive. Okay, so now you're thrown into, you, you've accepted this uh, scholarship, you've signed on. And you're thrown into this all-male world. Yes. It's, uh, it's not just the male prisoners. It's the male guards. It's the male, you name it, they're, they're, it's male. And you're the first female doctor and one of the first doctors in the prison system, as you said. And you're signed on for four years. Two years into your, your start there, something horrific happened. In fact, you were taken hostage yes. um, by one of the inmates that you took care of. Yes. And um, that hostage event uh, happened on Friday the 13th in October. And there's a whole story why, because he wanted to be killed on the 14th year anniversary that he had killed a police officer. So in that event, he, I was taken down by force. He assaulted me, raped me, went on 10 hours. Um, a SWAT team got me out with a, a concussion grenade and blew him away a few feet from me. Now, what's wild about the story is not so much the event, but to me what happened afterwards, because I was in shock and uh, I was debriefed afterwards and I just did not tell the prison what happened to me. And, and I don't think they really cared if you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> and on Monday I show up back at work and no one had checked. No. And when I came back, no one really said anything to me. Uh, not the custody, really not the prison administration, not really staff. And part of it, when you're in shock, you're almost glad no one's bothering you. And then later you think, I thought, no one cares. Or maybe they wanted me dead because I was oriented to help the inmate population because I was a doctor and I wanted to help them heal and be less of a risk than when they left the prison system, right? And I, I look at things holistically and it only made sense for me to care for them in a way where when they re-enter society, they would be a less of a risk to society. But in a militaristic male world, that's very oriented to harm and punishment and regimentation. I was labeled an inmate lover. <laughs> All right, you see, which is like a very bad thing in the prison. But to me, compassion is what makes medicine work. Security looks at compassion as a weakness and a vulnerability. You see what I mean? And when I started, I, I was really naive in, I think, not truly understanding them. And they certainly didn't understand me. Then on top of it, you have to layer it with, I was married to a uh, 
my husband and soulmate who happened to be African-American. And I was living in Carson City, Nevada, where the prison is. There were absolutely no black people in Carson City, Nevada in the eighties. And I mean, none. And when I entered the prison, cause they had built three prisons on the outskirts cause Carson City was a very old city, you know, wow. for Nevada as a state. Uh, one out of four of my inmate population was black. Okay. So then what happens is I am, let's say, uh, kind and compassionate to my entire inmate population. Including, and so including. I was literally investigated for uh, giving preferential treatment to black men because I was married to a black husband. You know, that sort of racist sort of stuff. Okay. So it's just the opposite of what everyone else you you. Uh, yes. It's, yeah, you see it's, what I mean. It, yes, was, it, was very, just... it was very, it was very strange for me. But the thing that, because uh, a lot of people would say, "Why in the, why did you ever stay?" Because you could have left. Right. You could have sued the prison uh, because it was really they were culpable. I mean, they let this guy. You'd have to imagine he had been, this inmate had been on death row at one time for killing a police officer. He was on a medium security prison yard. And when he came in to see me in those old days, they never really checked inmates. So he brought in a buck knife, like a not a make-believe knife, which is a shiv, a true buck knife. And he had supplies with him. He had a bag where he had torn up t-shirts and made ropes out of. He had a whole carton of cigarettes because he was a chain smoker ready for the whole deal. He brought junior mints and acid with him because of marijuana. He brought in marijuana with him. None of that was actually, you know, no one checked him. He just no came in. And then my, another security thing, my office was at the end of this long, dark, dim hallway at the end, right? So when he took me down uh, in the event, and I'm in this office, it's like an exam room. The day he took me hostage, the um, officer on charge it was actually a female. It was her first day on the job. Huh. First day. Okay. okay. Now, I think that this particular inmate, uh, Kenneth Meller was his name. He was known as Moth on the yard. He had an IQ that was very high. And I, I think he understood all the different variables that would enable him to take me hostage without a hitch. And he really wanted to be killed, suicide by cop. You see what I mean? Right. And that's why you said he did it on the anniversary of when he right. killed. Yeah, he wanted to be killed on the anniversary at, he wanted to be killed. He took me at hostage 10 a.m. and he wanted to be killed at midnight on the 14th oh, year dude. anniversary. And he had seen me a total of 14 times. There are 14 letters in my full name. Okay. It's very, it's it's like almost so, like a Hannibal Lecter type. Okay. Of so it was it was exceedingly planned out. Yes, very but, much so. So you talk about you were the first doctor basically um in that prison and and probably in many, many of prisons, you were one of the first doctors, you're a female doctor. Um, So you talk about wanting to help. How were you able to help either uh, other than medically? 
I mean, were because before that law went into effect 10 years before, yeah. um, it was up to whoever was in charge as to whether they could even see a doctor. So now were the rules so lax that they could come whenever they wanted? Well, it, it, it depends on the, the prison and the security level. My prison was a medium security level. And in the old days, they would have what's called sick call. You know, if they were really sick, they would come mm -hmm. into the clinic and the nurse would check him out and then refer him to the doctor. Uh, or uh, the inmates had the ability to write a kite, which means a note to the medical department saying, hey, I really feel sick for the last week, I need to see a doctor and they'd be scheduled. So there's that. But when you ask about uh, how I helped them as well, besides just the medical side, Imagine when I started was the height of the AIDS epidemic yes. before we had drugs. Right. right. It was in the 80s. Right. In the 80s, because I was 87 and uh, the 80s were, if, if people remember, people were highly afraid of HIV and AIDS. And when I started in the prison, Nevada was unbelievably unique as a state. You had, you know, you have a big landmass, but you have a small population. And I think the legislators were also very homophobic because they passed a state law that they would test every single inmate in the state for HIV. Okay. Perfect. And any inmate entering the prison would be tested for HIV. That's how scared they were. Right. But like a lot of government laws, they don't think about consequences. They had no idea to they had no idea what they would do with that information afterwards, right? And I come in in 87 and all of a sudden, I mean, I literally have 120 HIV and AIDS patients, you know, in the system yeah. and there's no drug yet because AZT came out in the fall of uh, 87 and nobody knew what to do. Some prisons, uh, you know, like Alabama would put them in a jumpsuit with AIDS written on the back. Other prison systems like Florida, uh, for years, even when drugs came out that were effective, said, meh, they've got HIV, AIDS, we'll let them die. And they were slammed with huge lawsuits. Uh, but I, I just approached it medically where, okay, if we know who has it, they have to be told, they have to understand how to reduce their risk in terms of sharing needles, which they did on the yard. I have to train staff in custody because custody was just, you know, they had all the worst things. Like he spit on me, I'm gonna die, <laughs> that sort of thing. Uh, I started the first HIV support group because these guys were scared to death because they saw their other friends just die, you see? And it really was a death sentence in those days. And also policy, I was trying to help the prison director, like the politician guy, try to understand how to classify or what to do with them. And he had his own ideas. Like I have no HIV or AIDS patient working in a culinary because if the guy spits in the food, mm. then we'll have a riot, you know? So I, sure. I was giving him the medicine, but he controlled that. And the, the other thing is what I saw from the prison was these individuals, um, a lot of them had problems with addiction, poor life skill decisions, and there was nothing at all in the prison to address that. 
And on my own, I started all these programs um, as a volunteer in the evening, just sort of did it on my own. And they didn't, they thought I was crazy, but um, it was very well received by the inmates. Okay, so let's let's back up one 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 second yeah. um, because there's so much to go into. So you started in in '87, ten years 80. after in okay, ten years after the law was passed for medical. Um, you're assaulted, taken hostage, and raped within two years of being there. Uh, you're in the midst of the AIDS pandemic. You're in an all male prison. Um, what? Why did you stay? What made you uh, say, I could make a difference? I wanted to protect the inmates against abuses of power. I have real issues on a, I don't know, a molecular level when I see the underdog and the unfortunate abused. And I think part of that uh, was maybe somehow ingrained into me uh, through my mother. My mother um, grew up in Germany during the Second World War, you know, uh, not Jewish. She lived on the Baltic and her life was horribly disrupted by that war where at 11, the Russians came in on that side and she spent years freezing and starving in Russian POW camp and then uh, being put um, in the the Red Cross camps after the war and was a refugee, you know, no country anymore because that area of Germany was given to Poland, still living in the barracks, uh, just having soup and, and you know, people always in power um, abusing those underneath. And I, I heard all these peripheral stories at growing up. I'm the oldest cousin. and uh, And then you hear all these stories of, really abuse during the Second World War in power. And okay. to me, you know, I look at um, the, the Nazis who came to power and it, and I asked my mother a lot of, I was a very curious little kid. And I asked her, hey, how come, uh, you know, the Germans really did that to the Jewish people? And she said, Karen, she goes, why did they hate them? You know, I asked her this question. She goes, absolutely not. We feared them. She said, once you create fear in anyone, she said, it's very easy to get those people to then hate and destroy the other person. And all those types of odd messages just really um, sunk home. And also, I think, you know, I grew up sort of on the poor side, uh, but not um, starving. Okay. And I've always been an underdog in my mind, you know, underdog in terms of wanting to be in medical school, you know, back in the 70s when women, that wasn't all that common. Um, the first girl that actually played uh, interscholastic sports in high school, the first girl who was on a college team, my college team, I played on a male's volleyball team. I was always sort of the first in like an underdog. And I, when I saw the inmate population, first of all, to me, they were thrown away as children. So many of them were 
had the worst upbringings, the worst parents, the worst situations, and the social and racial inequities really bothered me. And uh, then you have custody, which most people don't understand that custody officers, they're not like police. Police have a, a fair amount of training. Custody officers have a high school education, six weeks of training, and then they're in charge of people's lives 24 hours every single day for decades. That is can be a formula for disaster. So your upbringing and, and uh, you looking at the underdog, was that really what kept you there for 30 years to, to want to see if you could do something better yeah, somehow? I, yes, I, I mean, I really stayed because I want, I really felt, you know, if I'm going to be a doctor, where can I help the most? It's sort of like, if you want to be a light, if you go to the darkest place possible, which is a prison for the most part, your light can shine the brightest and make the most impact. And also I didn't see anybody else who for the most part wanted to do that either. You know, even when I wrote my book, um, 30 Years Behind Bars, Trials of a Prison Doctor, when I left, part of the reason I wrote the book is I realized there had never been a book written in the United States by a female prison doctor. I couldn't find any. None. So, okay. Why did you stay? I understand wanting to help. And I, I, I understand, uh, you know, the, the injustices that you saw um, with the AIDS pandemic, the racial, and I'm sure there's more that we can get into. Why yeah. did you not go to a women's prison? And, and why did you stay at the male prison? Well, first of all, the women prisoners, uh, that's only about 10% of the population of inmates in a particular okay. state. And the female prison uh, was located toward Las Vegas, which is, you know, like an eight, nine hour drive from where I live. So that would make no sense whatsoever to me. And the other thing is... Um, when I created all those programs, I must say I really enjoyed um, seeing the light go on in uh, the the inmate population. And for me, you know, a lot of women uh, they support women, they want women to be stronger, and all these things, and that's wonderful. But I felt that the best thing for me, since I'm stuck in a male world, is to help males. Uh, be less violent, have better life skills, uh, be oriented to protect women, not harm women. And I could do that. And that is something that um, most women don't do. They help each other be incredibly strong, but they don't tend to help men, especially, you know, these men beat on their wives, you know, tortured their wives, raped their wives. I mean, but if you can make an impact on those men, that would be to me, in my mind, incredibly helpful to women, but also children. Um, and, I actually brought in my husband, you know, my black husband, I brought him into the prison. 
to um, give the first Martin Luther King Day talk. And then that spun into him teaching uh, college classes, him forming the first incarcerated veterans chapter, which uh, was really powerful in the prison because we had so many vets. And here again, as a female, my husband, you know, he had an MBA in finance. He had grown up in a socially elite family. He was not a victim. He was an elite. And in his mind, he thought they do the crime, do the time, lock them up and throw away the key. I'm the one who dragged in my husband so he could help the men be men. Men that are oriented to protect women. And then when he realized how many of those men truly had been damaged as children, my husband not only mentored them, he got the bug in his head to then mentor kids at risk who had parents in prison. So my husband and I mentored a total of five. Uh, three out of the five have already graduated college and two out of the five are still works in progress. My husband passed away two years ago. So now I, I'm the one who's still trying to help the last two, the 13 and 17 year old. Okay. But, and, and, and also I actually enjoyed it. Um, and I, and I will say for me, if I was just the doctor all the time, God, that would, that would probably ground me down. But the fact that I was able to do these programs as a volunteer and teach. I loved teaching. My husband and I started the first Toastmasters class in the prison. That was, that was incredible fun. So I mean, tell, tell we me, did all these things together. Okay. So when you say, you know, you started uh, some of the programs, um, I know the AIDS crisis was, was one that um, really, uh, precipitated you doing, you know, educating these men, making right. them feel not as scared as they were about everything because the world was scared about AIDS. And here you right. have hundreds of them who have it all in the same place. Yeah. Um, and do you think, uh, you know, back then they allowed you to do it because they thought, oh, you're just a nutty woman. I mean, you know, what harm could it do? But I, by, by them allowing you to do it, you were able to actually help and do even more. Yeah, I think what happened is uh, depending on the prison director, because, you know, I did 30 years, but I lived through 10 prison directors. Oh, they lasted so, a long time, huh? Each one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they didn't last that long because it's huh. a political spot. And the pendulum, some are more progressive and some are horrible. And one of the things I did was I stayed out of politics. I just stayed on my foundation strength, my foundational strength was giving care to the inmates. And because I did everything for free, uh, if it made any of them look a little good that they had something going and it cost the prison really nothing. And uh, we didn't have security problems with it. Uh, the majority of them just didn't care. So after I did the 30 years, you're, you're a state employee. And after 30 years, if you continue working, 
um, and you're over 60 like I was, then you're really working for absolutely uh, no income coming in at all. You see what I mean? Yep. So, and then at that same exact time, we had a very ugly, let's say, administration and warden at the time I left. And I thought, okay, Karen, uh, you never wanted the prison to really change you and get bitter. And this is the right time and the right place to leave. And now you can do something on the outside, which you could never do on the inside, which is one, be more vocally active, more politically active, uh, write about it. So 30 years and the holistic approach, what do you think was your biggest impact on your 30 years? Uh, my biggest impact, I really feel, was that I gave the inmate population hope that there were people who did care and who actually wanted to help them. And to this day, um, I still get a lot of guys because now since I'm out in the social world, you know, with a, um, a website, they will contact me and say, hey, Gedney, I'm out. I just want you to know I'm in Texas with my family and how much difference you made to me. I still get those. And, and that's, that's very, which I say, that's um, gratifying that uh, they still remember me. Well, I would think so. I mean, because what you've done for them, it's not just that they remember you, they remember the impact that you had and are still having because they're out there with their family and they're, they're able to move on because of, of what you gave them, the education you gave them, the compassion, if you want to use that word, and that they, you gave and them. And they really saw it from both my husband and I, because we were there all those years together. My husband was, he actually really enjoyed teaching. And so he was able to even mentor in a more direct way than I was, because I was technically a state employee. You see what I mean? And, uh, and I wasn't, I w could not fraternize with the inmate population in the outside world. That would have been a custody issue. But actually my husband could mentor and he could uh, arrange interviews for them for jobs. And uh, a lot of his guys ended up um, even CFOs. And you are actually, you're on the board of the Ridge House and the Nevada Prison Education Project. Right. Yes. Yeah. And so, yeah, so, so you're right it, in the heart of everything. Right. Now yeah, that you're, you're done. That right that I'm out. And, you know, when people will ask me, what does holistic prison reform mean? Mm -hmm. To me, I look at it medically where there's always three parts. There's the prevention piece, preventing people from ending up in the prison in the first place. When they do end up healing them on the inside as much as possible and making them less of a risk of a society and more of an asset instead of a pain in the ass to society, see, when they leave. And then the piece on re helping them reintegrate into society, because imagine if you spent 20 years in prison and your family's really gone, you don't really have any money. You don't even know what a cell phone is anymore, <laughs> you know, at all the computer stuff. Sure. And you get dumped on a curb 
and they truly need help with reintegration. And now I'm able to actually help that. A lot of people don't realize that if you're on parole, you actually have to pay the parole officer every month. And if you don't pay parole, you violate parole, they throw you back in prison. If you don't have a residence, you get violated. Uh, There's so many reasons you can get violated and thrown back into a prison. That's why when people talk about recidivism, how many come back? That, that can really change if you have a different philosophy where let's figure out how to not have technical parole violations because it's unbelievably expensive for society. So Karen, for anyone who's, anyone who's listening or has thought about prison reform and, and, and so on, what would be the one thing that you want them to take away from this conversation? I think the one thing uh, I would like them to take away is that this is truly a problem in the United States where we are unique. We are the mass incarcerators of the world. And that if they know that, they should at least have curiosity about one, why that has occurred, and two, what they can do about it. And a lot of people will say, oh God, I'm just me, but maybe if I wanted to help, what could I do? I will say that the best thing what I want people to do is mentor a kid at risk so they prevent them from ending up in a prison. And that can be through big brother, big sister organization, you know, uh, boys and girls clubs, things like that. And also if they're in any way politically oriented to take a look at some of these bills that are coming up that truly affect the criminal justice system that um, make it more racially and socially reasonable instead of always uh, being oriented to have the highest punishment for the people who are poor and minorities who get screwed actually in the system. Karen, um, your book, 30 Years Behind Bars, Trials of a Prison Doctor, what you mentioned that you put up a website. Once yes. you you were able to do that, you were no longer a state employee. So what Correct. is that uh, website? The website is discoverdrg.com. Karen, and that's because the inmates called me Dr. G. They would massacre my <laughs> last name, Gedney. It was very hard for them many times. So they called me Dr. G. Karen, I want to thank you very much for taking the time. Um, This has been very um, enlightening and hopefully people listening will understand uh, why you stayed for 30 years and what you have accomplished and are still accomplishing and what needs to be done with uh, prison reform. So I thank you so much. Yeah, and thank you. And if people love to read, the the book reads uh, very much like a novel and almost a love story. It starts the day I enter and the day I leave, and you go through the whole ride with me. Well, it's been one heck of a ride. I thank you. Thank you for joining me today. If you liked what you heard, Please share it with another person you think would be interested. 
and if you haven't already, please subscribe. Join me next week when I talk to another extraordinary, inspiring woman. This has been a Life of Prey production.